This is exactly right. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. This book is about grief. It's about loss, and it's about what parents we consider good parents and which parents we give chances to. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Most of you have probably heard the story of the Hart family, the couple that drove a car off a cliff with all of their adopted children inside. Our guest, Roxana Asgarian, unfolds the story with details that we've never heard before, including an investigation into the child welfare system. I'll warn you that much of this is difficult to hear. Well, why don't we start with the story of the birth families, how these kids, these six kids, ended up with these two women, and how potentially these two women ended up in the state they were in when they made this terrible decision. So let's start with the families. So there's two birth families. The first birth family that I encountered were the Davises, and that's the birth family of Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra. And so they were actually the second group of kids that were adopted. But I started with them because we were all living in Houston. So the kids were removed from their mom because she had a drug problem. She used cocaine. That came up when she gave birth to Jeremiah at first. And then when Sierra was born and Sherry tested positive for cocaine, the kids were ultimately removed from her care. And she was living with a man named Nathaniel, who was a much older guy, who was actually the primary caretaker. And Nathaniel was sober. He received disability benefits. And he was, by all accounts, a really loving father. He was the first person I actually ended up talking to, was Nathaniel. They were removed from him when they were removed after Sierra's birth. So ultimately, they moved to 
their aunt's house. And their aunt's name was Priscilla. And Priscilla was a church-going woman who worked full-time at a hospital in Houston. At the time, Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra had an older brother named Dante. And all four of those kids were initially involved in this CPS case. So all four of those kids lived with Priscilla up until this fateful day when she was unable to find childcare. She got called into work. And her daughter, who was a grown woman at that time, usually watched the kids, but she was unable. So she asked Sherry, who's their birth mother, to watch the kids. And while she was out and Sherry was there with the kids, a caseworker stopped by unannounced. And because Sherry's rights to her kids were terminated, she wasn't allowed to be around them. And so the kids were removed immediately when the caseworker showed up. So this is four kids at this point who are removed? Yes. And Dante was the oldest. So he was 10 at this time. He was acting out. He was the oldest. So he understood sort of what was going on more than the other kids. He really didn't want to be removed from his family. He was fighting and arguing. And he ended up getting sent to a residential treatment center, which is sort of like an institutional setting for mostly foster youth. So he was split from his siblings at that time. Kind of the frustrating thing about this story is that Sherry terminated her rights voluntarily because she was told that she needed to do that in order for Priscilla to adopt the kids. Because you can't adopt kids when they have legal parents already. So these four kids go into foster care. Well, one of them goes into a residential facility, but the other three kids go into foster care. What is their journey to where they eventually land with the hearts? So Texas has a website that you can look at. It's called the Texas Adoption Resource Exchange. And you can essentially shop for kids that you would like to adopt using that website. So Jennifer and Sarah Hart, who are a white married couple who both were from South Dakota, but at this time were living in Minnesota. They were looking at the Texas Adoption Resource Exchange, which they call TEAR, and they stumbled on... Devante and Jeremiah and Sierra. And they had used this website two years earlier when they adopted their first set of three children, also from Texas. So by that point, they'd already been through the process once. It went really quickly. Kids have to live in pre-adoptive homes for at least six months before you can initiate adoption. And they had lived with their aunt Priscilla for five and a half months. She was attempting to adopt them, even though they got removed. She had hired an attorney. She got denied, and then she appealed that decision. But before that appeal went through in the courts, the kids were already adopted by the Hearts. I'm surprised that they did not give preferential treatment to a family member, but I guess she had a mark against her for leaving the kids with their birth mother who had no rights and who obviously had some problems to begin with. Is that the thinking? Why would they not hold to see what Priscilla was going to do? Yeah, so I actually spoke to another judge who wasn't involved in this case, but he was a judge for these types of cases in Harris County, and he said that was actually not the way that it should have gone. If her appeal would have gone through, then the adoption would have been void. It felt pretty rushed. It was basically at the exact, you know, time when it could happen, it happened, despite the fact that there were family members and despite that there is a federal mandate that Family members must be given preference for placement of kids who are involved with CPS. That is there for a reason, and that's because there's plenty of research that shows that kids do best with their families. 
They do best with their parents. And when they can't be with their parents, they do best in family homes. And we understand this across the child welfare system. But I think in the case of the Davis family, it became clear that to me that sometimes the preference is more theoretical than it is actual. So will you educate me a little bit on, in time, where we are and what is the view of a same-sex couple adopting kids? Because I just assumed it was not going to be that easy, particularly in a state like Texas. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's an interesting wrinkle in the case, I think. I started looking into the judges, you know, in Harris County, and there's a whole history of corruption and racism. And there are actually instances of not the judge in this case, but a judge next door being very vocally anti-LGBT for adoptive parents. So I think that that is true that there, it kind of depends on the judge. The judge in the Davis family's case was really super interested in speed, in clearing out the docket, so to speak. You know, in his mind, and I spoke to him actually about this case, and he said, there are kids that languish in foster care, which is true, especially sibling groups because they're hard to place, multiple kids. And he said, Minnesota has been great for like providing people who want to adopt, essentially. And again, because they had already adopted three kids from Texas, they kind of knew the process. I will say that at the time that the Davis kids were adopted, there had already been an allegation of abuse against Jennifer and Sarah Hart regarding the three children that were already adopted. Were they in Minnesota during that accusation or were they in Oregon at that point? They were in Minnesota. And that either got totally missed by Texas, which it kind of looks like it did. I have some records, so I have their actual adoption paperwork. And I also have the foster care case file of Dante, the oldest. All of the removal stuff that was happening is in that file as well, because they kind of grouped the file by birth mom. So this judge is moving through his docket quickly. Are we also thinking that he's looking at these three Black children and thinking they are better off with a white family? I think that the facts of this case make that pretty clear. The officials that were involved assumed that the white women were a better home for the kids. There's a couple ways that that becomes clear. Like in Priscilla, the aunt's appeal that got denied, the court said, why should she have another bite at the proverbial apple? You know, like they were saying, no, you can't adopt these kids and we're going to be a little mean to you about it too. Amazing. But on the other side, the, you know, the abuse allegation sort of just went by. I mean, there was no charge, you know, like criminal charge yet at that point. A criminal charge did happen later, but it felt very clear that Texas thought, okay, this is the best place that these kids can end up. And after that, just kind of wiped their hands and never really checked. Although they did continue to pay monthly payments per child to the Hart women until their murder. Will you tell me about the first family and those kids before we sort of get into Sarah and Jennifer and what they were like? Sure. So as I was reporting this story, nobody knew who the family of Marcus and Hannah and Abigail was. And that was partly because Texas refused to disclose that information, even to the police who were investigating the murders, which is, I would say, an unusual level of confidentiality given yeah. the specifics of the case. So it was six months after the crash when I noticed a family name for Marcus 
in a big parcel of records that the sheriff's department in Washington, which was the last place that the family lived, released to the public. I guess it's important to note that the police did have these files as well. I just looked up the name on Facebook. I knew they came from the Corpus Christi area, and I ended up reaching out to their grandmother. And it became clear almost immediately that she did not know what had happened to the children. So I ended up telling her that, which was really awful because it had been six months. It was a huge national story, as you remember. So that means, you know, millions of people heard this awful news before the family was told. I got to know Tammy, who's the birth mom of Marcus and Hannah and Abigail, and her story, um, which involves experiencing childhood sexual abuse at a really young age and having resultant mental health struggles. So she spent time in like a state mental hospital as a child. She was experiencing homelessness and housing instability when she had Marcus, who's the oldest. Marcus was being raised mostly by Tammy's grandparents, so his great-grandparents. But ultimately, the reason they were removed from Tammy was Hannah got really sick and needed to go to the hospital, and Tammy didn't trust the hospital in Columbus, Texas, where they were living, and she wanted to go to Houston. But she had two other kids, and they couldn't fit in the ambulance, and she didn't have a ride there. And so there was this period of time that she was trying to figure out a way to get Hannah to the hospital. And she ended up calling her caseworker, who picked her up and took them to the hospital and immediately handed her removal paperwork. And the kids were removed at that point, and Tammy was actually charged with medical neglect. And she ended up having to spend time in jail because she couldn't afford to pay the fees that resulted from the case. And uh, she had the same situation as Sherry when she gave up her rights. She was under the impression that they were going to a foster home, like that foster home was going to adopt them. It was a Black couple who also had Black children and who told Tammy that she would be able to be in their lives. But again, you give up your rights and you give up your right to know anything and anything can happen to the kids after that. And so she doesn't know what happened with the prospective adoptive family. And there's actually no records that I could ascertain because of how Texas is very confidential with its records in cases like this. But they did end up in Minnesota with Jennifer and Sarah. So at what point in what year do Jennifer and Sarah have all six kids together? In 2008, they were all adopted. But there are some files that show that Jennifer and Sarah did not necessarily think that their family was complete. They had continued to look for kids on the Texas Adoption Resource Exchange, and they had also tried IVF unsuccessfully. Well, now I think we need to talk about them because all of the lives intersect at this point. What can you tell me about either woman, whichever one you want to go with first? We'll start with Jennifer because Jennifer was the much more vocal person in the couple. Jennifer grew up in Huron, South Dakota. She was gay, but she never actually came out to her dad, at least, not explicitly. She met Sarah in college, and Sarah was from an even smaller town in South Dakota, um, right on the border of Minnesota. They moved to Minnesota after college, and Sarah was working for a department store, and Jennifer, she never got her degree, and I think they started planning pretty quickly after that for adopting through the foster care system. So they originally got a foster 
youth named Bree, who was a teenager who lived in Minnesota. I think Bree's experience actually shows a lot because she was able, I mean, she lived there with a couple. She actually saw them looking through the website and talking about adopting kids. And she was under the impression that she would be a part of that family shortly before they went to go pick up Marcus and Hannah and Abigail from Houston. They dropped Brie off for her therapy appointment, and the therapist told Brie that it wasn't going to work out and that they had already had all of her stuff packed up. And she had no idea, and still basically to this day has no idea what caused their change in thinking. I mean, she was really upset. She said that she saw, later saw them with their kids and felt really awful, you know, because it was this pretty small town in Minnesota where they all lived. And she still to this day is like very confused about what happened, especially in light of what came afterwards. Did you say Brie was Black? I can't remember if you said that. Brie was white and also her rights to her mother were not terminated. So she wasn't open to be adopted permanently. That's part of an issue with the foster to adopt is that there are some people who use the foster system as a means like directly to adopt. But there are a lot of kids in the foster system who need temporary safe places with loving parents and don't need to have their rights to their parents totally severed. Are people in her life, their lives, Sarah and Jennifer, shocked based on what they know, not about the crash necessarily, but the allegations that came before it. Does this just seem completely out of character for either of these women? But when they came together, something happened, something changed with both of them. What is even the dynamic? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that first and foremost, Jennifer was very active on social media and she she spun a story, a narrative about her relationship, about her family, about the kids. And that heavily influenced how people perceived her and the family. There were a ton of friends that were completely shocked by what happened. You know, one of her friends right after the crash had said, "Uh, Jennifer and Sarah are the kinds of parents that this world needs. So that was a fiction, really, that was spun with really beautiful photography of the children, like in their chicken coop and at the Grand Canyon and all of this kind of stuff. That's partly, I think, why people were so drawn to this case is because there was this whole record of a life and the reality of the situation. And those things were so hard to reconcile with each other. Before the inquest happened, there was a line of thinking from a lot of people who were following the case that Jennifer was probably the abuser of the family. I think in this case, though, it became pretty clear that the evidence that was there actually pointed to both women being involved in the abuse. The first thing is Sarah was charged with domestic violence for putting bruises on one of her children. Um, That was in Minnesota. She pled guilty and served probation. There was some confusion maybe that like Jen had sort of asked her to fess up to it or something, but that's not what the evidence showed. And ultimately, after the crash, they looked through the women's cell phones and they found a whole bunch of really incriminating Google searches on Sarah's phone about how much Benadryl would kill a certain pound person, 
the kids were all found to have ingested huge quantities of Benadryl before they went off the cliff. And, you know, searches about like hypothermia of drowning and um, all kinds of really awful stuff. And it became clear, at least to me, that it was both Jennifer and Sarah that were involved in the abuse of the kids. Let's take these offenses and now let's pick up the timeline sort of in real time. They're in Minnesota with these kids and there's this domestic abuse allegation against Sarah and she pleads guilty, but they don't lose the kids, right? What happens step by step? Where do they go and what do they do and what do people see as this escalates? Yeah, so prior to the criminal complaint, the teachers of the kids in Minnesota were reporting alarming behavior. So they were reporting that the kids were really hungry and that they didn't seem to have enough food to eat and that they were asking other people for food and and even looking in trash cans. And to that, Jennifer and Sarah said that the kids had food issues because of foster care, which is not rare, actually. But it became clear to the teachers that when they were calling home that the kids were getting disciplined. And so they stopped basically reporting this stuff. But when Sarah pled guilty, they pulled their kids from public school. And that was the last time the kids were in public school or any school. And because of that, they lost contact with really any other adults besides their parents. Sarah had to finish probation. But once that probation ended, they immediately moved to Oregon. They lived in Oregon for a little while before... A second investigation started, and this one was reported by friends of the family who witnessed some really alarming punishment of all of the kids, but particularly of Marcus. Um, They had gone to visit this woman at her house, and they were only each allowed to have one small piece of pizza, but they had ordered a lot of pizza, and so they had a bunch in the fridge. And when they woke up in the morning, the woman made a comment to her husband, like, did you eat all the pizza in the fridge? And that set off Jennifer, who forced all of the kids to lay on their air mattress with eye masks on for like the whole day. And it was Marcus's birthday and she wouldn't let anyone say happy birthday to Marcus. And the kids were very skinny at this point like alarmingly skinny. And Hannah was so small that people regularly thought that she was like five years younger than she actually was. That woman reported this and there was another investigation and they actually reached out to the Minnesota child welfare officials who said, you know, the problem is these women, they look normal. And when they're confronted with these alarming behaviors, they have a tendency to put them back onto the kids and explain it by their trauma histories and their experience in foster care. And that Oregon investigation, a doctor found that five of the six kids were so small that they weren't even on the growth charts at all for (sighs) their ages. And still they were not removed. Shortly after that, they moved to Washington, not too far away, just sort of the other side of Portland, basically. And essentially... Devante started going to their neighbor's house and asking for food, large amounts of food. And Hannah had one time uh, ran away in the middle of the night and told the neighbors that she was being abused and her parents were racist. And finally, the neighbors called that in to CPS. And that was sort of the inciting incident that Mm. led to the family leaving and driving to California in the first place. 
Tell me about the racism allegations. What did Hannah say was going on in this house? Well, the thing with Hannah was that she basically jumped out of the second story window, ran over to the neighbor's house in the middle of the night. The neighbors were like sleeping and kind of confused and obviously really like alarmed. The other thing is that Hannah, again, she looked really young. So they're thinking like, maybe this is like an eight-year-old. I think at that point she was 15. She had no two front teeth because they had got knocked out, which was another social media post that was really alarming, where Jennifer's fingers were holding like an entire tooth root to tip, saying like, oh, Hannah slipped and the rule is no running in the house or something like that. But she never got replacement teeth, so it ended up making her look a lot younger. And I think... They didn't get any specifics because shortly after she came over, the family had come to look for her. Jennifer would not allow the neighbors to talk to Hannah on her own after they arrived. And again, I think partly because they thought she was so much younger, they just thought, and they said, oh, again, with the, she has a lot of problems and, you know, and then she wrote a note where she said, I'm sorry, I I shouldn't have come here and all of this. And so they didn't really get any clear sense of what was going on. But when Devante started coming over repeatedly and asking for food, and it wasn't just food for him, it became clear that it was food for all of his siblings. He told them, though, please don't call CPS because we don't want to be split up from each other, which is probably a pretty reasonable fear, you know, because there's six of them. And I think that might have contributed to why they were never removed in the first place was like they didn't know necessarily who was responsible for them. Mm -hmm. And there's no process for that. And that became clear because multiple, multiple people were very alarmed by what they saw with this family and repeated attempts to protect the kids went unheeded. So do you think Jennifer and Sarah were feeling increasing pressure? There's more and more incidents because the kids are older now and they are making kind of bigger moves. They're getting attention. We talk about the inciting incident. What was it that got them loaded up into that gold Yukon and drove down into California to have what happened? What leads up to that? I think that's a good point that the kids were getting older. Marcus was 19 at that time. I also think that there might have been a sense that their luck would run out at some point with investigations. Often people say like, okay, they must have been really overwhelmed. I will say that if there was already an abuse allegation before they adopted the second set of three kids, they doubled the number of kids. Six kids is a huge number of kids, but also six kids from two families mixed ages, right? Mm -hmm. And trauma histories, extensive trauma histories. I couldn't imagine that. And that stands to reason that like that might have been, instead of fast tracking the second adoption, that might have been like a pause, like, okay, that's a lot of kids for anyone. You know, that's a lot of kids for like trained therapists. And then you're thinking, if you're the judge, why are you not thinking Maybe these are parents who are doing this for the paycheck and that's it. You know, that many kids. That's a good point. And it's $400 per child. Additionally, Devontae and Jeremiah got disability payments from Nathaniel Davis, their father figure, that 
they also continued to receive until their deaths. So this was like $2,600 a month. And isn't it if the kids need therapy, I interviewed a different author about a similar sort of situation. If the kids need therapy or they need anything that's special, there's more money that the state provides, right, with the intention that you're going to use that money to help them get the help they need. Yeah, it's a good point. And it's also true that the family was really open about taking the kids off of all of their psychiatric meds. And the foster care system has a tendency to over-medicate children, for sure. That's documented. But they didn't go to therapy. The kids didn't continue going to therapy. The thing that happens when kids get removed from home at a young age, especially if they get moved around from place to place, is that every single time they move, they internalize the idea that they're never going to be safe or stable. That even if it seems good, it might not last. It probably won't last. And that's really harmful psychologically for kids. Well, let's talk about that. We do have to talk about the psychology here because we've been talking about the facts. What is going on? What do you think they're doing? You've got this sort of picture-perfect family on the outside. They're over the top with their social media posts. They're really trying to present themselves not just as a happy, healthy, blended family, but like activists. They have them out there in the Black Lives Matter protests. You know, there's all this sort of facade going up, but so much bad behind it. What are people saying about what they were doing, what they were thinking? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but to me, Jennifer seemed to have a really sort of a mindset of like she herself being persecuted, persecuted for her Black children and persecuted for her lesbian relationship. And I think she sort of shows the signs of narcissism. And again, I'm not a psychologist, but the idea that like everything is taken through the frame of herself primarily There were some things in the social media posts that were really inappropriate, I felt. Talking about private and kind of embarrassing, potentially, situations with the kids. Because the kids were going through a lot of stuff. And, you know, she talked about the first night that Marcus and Hannah and Abigail spent in their home and how Marcus was banging his head against the wall and, you know, bleeding and screaming and, you know, and all this stuff. And it's like, if that's true, which we don't know, and we don't have really any evidence for any of the stuff that she was saying, but if that's true, how embarrassing is that for him? You know, I mean, it's a really challenging move. They're thousands of miles away in the totally different climate in like a basically all white town. They're never going to see their mom again. (laughs) Like these are reasons that kids do act out in a, and it's normal and you can really understand that. And it's framing her as this savior, literally a white savior, savior coming in and saving him. Look what I have to deal with. Look at what's happening and look how lucky this kid is to have Sarah and me as parents. Exactly. And even that exact same post where she was talking about their first night there, she said, if not us, who? We have natural maternal instincts and we have buckets of love and all this kind of stuff. And it's like the central character in the story, especially in the story of adoption and especially adoption from foster care, right, should not be the parent because it's the kid's journey and the kid is experiencing it with a lot less power and with a lot more internal instability without really understanding developmentally the sort of context for it, just having really big feelings around it. 
Are we seeing anything in their backgrounds that points to these tendencies before they have any of these children, maybe even before we met? I'm assuming people have been looking and talking to family members or talking to friends from high school. So I did speak to some family members that ended up not wanting to be on the record. And there were a couple specific stories that were quite alarming, especially regards to Jennifer. There was one story about how one of Jennifer's siblings was using a Q-tip and she walked by and banged her head against the Q-tip. Ooh. Okay, so they get into the gold Yukon and when are they thinking the timeline starts for obviously a panic to set in? They think that CPS is going to come knocking at their door and take away these kids. Is that right? Right. So they came home. Actually, I think they were home because they didn't answer the door. So the caseworker put her card in the door. When the caseworker returned, still not unable to get a hold of the family, the card was gone, but also the Yukon was gone. And they had a little sort of small wall along their driveway. And it was like they had backed into the wall and like toppled over some of it. I think the panic set in before they ever left. I think they probably realized or maybe thought that just because they had recently been investigated in Oregon, you know, and like you said, the kids were getting older, which Uh means they were able to leave. I think they had a lot of that white savior idea that like the kids couldn't function without them. I think they probably did also believe that the kids are really messed up and kind of assigned all those behaviors. You know, I think probably in their minds, they thought the things that they were doing, like with the withholding food and all that were like necessary in some way. It did seem like they had like a complex, right, of like being the victimized people. And so in that frame of mind, they probably thought that if they couldn't have the kids, then, you know, I mean, that's really awful to think, right? That you would think of killing your family before you would think of just letting them exist without you. Yeah, they think they're doing them a favor. I mean, any of the research I've done on family annihilators, some of them say in their heads, they don't want to live with this shame. They don't want them to go on without them. They wouldn't be able to function. It's so narcissistic. And it makes me wonder what that day was like. Do you think that they left Washington knowing that this was going to be a plan, that this is what they should do? Or do we get the impression from any of the evidence that this was spur of the moment, even if that means they decided that morning to do this? Yeah, I think the evidence shows that they were kind of figuring it out as they were driving because of Sarah's Google searches. So she searched for no-kill shelters for dogs. They had animals. I think it started forming, like, how to do it. I think they did realize that they were trapped before they left, but I don't know that they came up with the plan. It's really hard to say because there's the evidence on their phones. There's the evidence on the car itself, right, that shows that they didn't break. But I don't know what it was like in that car and how they, you know, were able to drug the children or anything like that. Are either women talking to friends, texting in the days leading up to this at all? I had read somewhere that maybe Sarah regretted something beforehand. This just seems like everybody's on edge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sarah, this was a while back that Sarah had told one of her coworkers that she wished that she knew that you don't have to have a big family. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, tell me about that day. So the crash happens on March 26th of 2018. What do we know from, I know there's CCTV, there's receipts, there's cell phone records. Piece together what happens leading up to what happens on March 26th. So they left the house and they started driving. 
I don't think they stayed at any hotel or anything. They stopped at a grocery store and bought some like bananas and snack foods. They parked their car at this turnoff off the Pacific Coast Highway. And there was another couple, like an older couple who had an RV and was driving down the coast from Alaska. They heard the car and they poked out and saw the car. And then he said in the middle of the night, this was like three in the morning, he heard what sounded like bottoming out. Wait, what does bottoming out mean exactly? You ever hit like a speed bump too fast? No, oh, yeah. You know, like it makes a loud uh, sound where the bottom of the car hits the ground. Okay. What he thought happened was that they had like peeled out to go down to the town, which was nearby. So he thought maybe they just left fast. He said he thought he heard something like off the cliff and that he thought maybe it was a seal. And then he went back to bed. He left with his wife the next day. And then there was a German tourist who spotted, like, it was a lookout point, right? So people would come there and park their car and look at this beautiful view. And that's what this German tourist was doing when they noticed the car flipped on its hood at the bottom of the cliff. And we know that we have rescuers going down there and they're looking. And tell me what the scene is because it's total disarray. Yeah, it was a really difficult scene, actually, crime scene, because the car was actually on the shore, but partly in the water. And because of that, the tide had been coming in and out, right? So in addition to the impact, which was a huge impact, because it was a 100-foot cliff that the car went off and it was on its hood, there was also this tide, which was coming in and going out. There had been a storm recently, So it made it really challenging for investigators to find the rest of the bodies because three of the kids were found. Two of the kids were found much later. One was found weeks later. And one kid, Devante, was never found. And that's partly because the conditions were so changeable. So like one of the searchers said, you'd go down to the beach at 2 p.m. And you'd go down at the beach at 8 p.m. And it was like a totally different beach. You were seeing all different things made it really challenging for people to do the search. What does the car say actually happened? Because a car can tell you, right, the black box inside the car can tell you whether or not the car was braking at the time of a crash or accelerating. Yes, it accelerated off the cliff. That became clear pretty early on when there were no skid marks. You often see some evidence at the street level that there's braking, that there's attempts to, you know, turn really fast or something like that. So there was nothing like that at the actual. And there's a berm, like an 18-inch berm, which is just like a raised amount of earth around the whole lookout just for safety. And so you would have to accelerate to get over that. What is the toxicology saying about the two women and the kids that they were able to recover? I know we talked about Benadryl. Did both women take Benadryl or was there alcohol? Sarah took Benadryl. Sarah wasn't driving. She was in the passenger seat. So all of the kids and Sarah were found with like massive amounts of Benadryl, like overdoses of Benadryl. And Jennifer was drunk. Has there been any kind of reckoning with the foster care system in Texas once this story came out and these families, I mean, the Davis family in particular, I know that they had been interviewed. Was there any kind of a reckoning? Were there apologies? Was there acknowledgement that this was a mistake? No, there was no acknowledgement at all on the part of Texas. 
the caseworker that was Tammy's caseworker. So she had a big hand in placing Marcus and Hannah and Abigail. And after that adoption went through, she actually wrote this glowing letter of recommendation that this family should get any kids that they want, right? They're just the wonderful parents. I followed up with her and I asked her sort of how she felt about it. And she said, I don't know, something must have happened, but I still don't really believe it that they did this. (laughs) And I said, have you read the news stories? And she said, no. Will you tell me, do you know what happened to Bree, who was the teenager who temporarily lived with the Hearts, and to Dante, who was the 10-year-old who did not go with them, who would have presumably ended up dead, but instead went to like a mental health facility? So Bree, I reached out to her. She still lives in Minnesota in the same town. She actually works for like a behavioral health program. She seems fine. And she's in contact with her mom and they get along well and they've sort of worked through some of their issues that they'd had that had resulted in her being in care. With Dante, his story is a big part of the book and he spent years in that institution, which it's called a mental health facility, but they don't provide very much mental health care and the place is rife with abuse. He did experience abuse there, at least one documented instance where his shoulder was dislocated by a staff member. He actually was able to reunite with Nathaniel at age 16. He walked across town. He like recognized the neighborhood. He went and found Nathaniel and Nathaniel was able to gain custody of him before he aged out. This was Sherry's boyfriend and not his biological son. No, but he never gave up hope. And he never gave up hope on the other kids, too, until he found out that they were killed. And it was really tragic. It was really tragic for Dante, too, because Dante has years and years of case reports where he was begging his caseworker to contact his siblings. He felt responsible for them being taken from him because he was the oldest and he thought that his bad behavior led to their removal. He felt responsible for that. Also, he begged to the point where they did ask Jennifer and Sarah if he could have a phone call with them, and they said no. What has been the lesson, do you think, just in the national news? What do people take away when they read your book or any narrative on this story? My hope is that my book adds to what's out there already about this case that helps people understand that the way that the child welfare system works or doesn't work, greatly contributes to traumatizing kids. Because I think we have this tendency to think of parents who are involved with CPS as bad parents, bad people, and that, you know, removing kids from that situation is helping them. But I think that's often not true. I think there are so many kids that are stuck in foster care dealing with just really horrific abuse in care and that we provide no support to them, real emotional support. Like a kid needs someone who loves them. And we take all of the people, all of their family away. Even this case, like the Hart family case, is a story that Texas considered a win. And it's not a win. So I want to sort of draw attention to the idea that the system is not set up to really help children. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. 
Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.